Hey guys, welcome again to ECP Building Blocks. If you are new this time around, if you're just joined us because you're super interested in the subject, welcome. If you are a longtime Building Blocks listener, we appreciate you. I think we're all kind of excited for today's topic. This is a big um, sort of trending word out there right now, insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, um, what a carbohydrates have to do with it all and so we're excited to be able to bring you this information and let's just introduce ourselves real quick I think by now you probably know who we are but if you don't um, I don't want to skip this part so I am Susie Glassman obviously a coach here with Eat to Perform it's been about three years now so super exciting I'm also a mom of two and I just very 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 much enjoy what i do so how about ed all right guys so yeah i'm also a full-time coach here at eat to perform and have been for about a year and a half now uh really enjoy bodybuilding things like that playing sports um so just enjoying the summer excited for the football season nice amber hey guys I uh, own a CrossFit gym, am a mom of three, and actually getting ready to put my oldest on a plane in a couple days to go up to Ohio for a rogue uh, Olympic lifting training camp, which is, makes me kind of nervous, but getting ready to put my baby on a plane. Anyways, um, been with Eat to Perform for quite a bit and coaching in this last, or, uh, I guess for about a year now and loving it so super excited to talk to you guys today Susie cool and Dr. Brad it's me I'm here you guys probably know me by now um, I I go by Dr. Brad most people just call me Brad um, I'm the self-proclaimed chief scientific officer here so I gave myself that title <laughs> and uh, yeah I've been here for three years um, I think Susie and I started right around the same time so yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride the last three years. Very cool. Well, and tell us because this topic today is pretty near and dear to your heart, right? This is my research career, pretty much. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Cool. So I did a I did a PhD in basically diabetic cardiovascular work, um, and then I did a fellowship in diabetic kidney work, um, and it's all been ordered around you know, metabolism, exercise, inflammation, gene regulation, insulin resistance, the whole shebang. So this is kind of what I've spent the last really decade of my life studying in a professional manner. Yeah, very cool. And I know um, if you got, if we have some listeners on here who are, who have joined the Institute for Better Dieting, this is also what you are going through topic wise right now as well, correct? Yes, so we're currently working on a diabetes module, um, which has been a lot of fun. I think it's been really interesting for people to kind of see what's 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 real um, and what isn't real. Yeah, I think what's been interesting to me is is studying like just seeing how the population has changed in the last hundred years and and sort of the issues that we're facing now that that our society didn't face and and taking a look at why why we're seeing those changes now. So. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really interesting when you track the data in real time um, and see exactly what's happened to our population and and how quickly things have changed, right? I mean, you think about big changes in populations that usually take hundreds, if not thousands, of years and and you know a few decades. The whole phenotype of our population and the whole health of our population is just completely shifted. I mean, 30 percent, sixty percent has really changed their phenotype and that's pretty staggering yeah absolutely and if there's any problem to try to solve right now i think this is one of them right yeah yeah for sure okay well so this is just something we do in building blocks real quick i know everybody's more anxious to get to the actual topic today but we do like to spend you know just a couple of minutes talking about achievements things that you guys have done this week Again, we hand out a prize at the end of the webinar today. So the more you participate, 
the more likely you are to be chosen. So um, Amber is going to read these off. I see we already have one. And um, we usually kind of go through the coaches and we'll name off ours in order to give you guys some time. If you don't know how to type a question, um, it's where the little hand is raised. You click on that and type them in. So um, for me, I don't know so much. I have an achievement this week. I was telling the guys I, I rent. We have this local incline in our city and I finally went out and did it. And I ran up and down about 200 steps over and over again. So my accomplishment right now is just being able to walk because my calves are so sore. Um, Amber, anything with you this week? Um, nothing this week, but tomorrow I am going to go whitewater rafting. Oh, that's fun. Super that excited sweet. to take my kids. They've never done it. So this yeah. is going to be a family first. And I'll have to report next building blocks how it goes. <laughs> so I'll let Just you know. Your phone like locked away. I always hear people like drop their phone in the river or drop their sunglasses or yeah. So this could be like an epic family success or fail. I don't know. I'll let you guys. I'll keep you updated. Yeah, that's cool. Ed, real quick, anything with you? Uh, nothing really yet. But I am thinking about getting tickets to the Penn State Ohio State game this season. Even though I don't like either team, I actually hate them both. <laughs> <laughs> I like Michigan, but Penn State is close to me, and it's a really cool experience. So, thinking about going to that game. All right, uh, Brad. Other than your forty-pound dog, what's going on? Uh, <laughs> let's see. We. I have two papers that we have revised that we're resubmitting that should get published, which will be awesome. And then we're also submitting another new submission of a peer-reviewed paper. So that's three in a week, which is a, a lot. So it'll be nice to get those just off the desk and on to the next project. All right. Well, Amber, let's read off some of these. So... Chris got a um, PR on her run this morning in on her um, third day in fat loss, which is pretty awesome. And Alyssa is getting back to greens, uh, working on dialing, dialing some things in. But what I love most is that she has been setting appointments on her calendar to work on mobility breaks. Just taking a, a hot second in the day to um, work on some mobility and that makes her back feel better, which is awesome. Liz is taking a time out for herself um, and really putting herself first, which is super important. Um, Mary has been laughing out loud a lot the last few days. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Eric is back at it after getting married and moving. Um, goodness, that's. That's a lot going on. Holy smokes. Lynn um, has been working some crazy overtime um, and achieved 10,000 steps every day this week. What a great goal. Put um, steps on your list of something to work towards or just being more active outside of your exercise time. That's mm -hmm. awesome. And let me just pick one or two more, Susie. Hang on just a second. Um, let's see what else we got. Ooh, Deborah got a PR on a front squat. That is fantastic. Let's see. Pr front squats are tough. I'm, yeah. I'm more of a back squat kind of girl, but you know, I mean, front squats get it done too. I hear you. Um, let's see. Lori has been prioritizing sleep and allowing herself to Re allowing herself rest days when she's feeling beat up. That is so important to listen to your body. And if you need to rest, then take that rest. Don't just power through it. So good job for listening to what your body needs, Lori. Susie, we have a ton more, but we could be here all day reading all the awesome things that people are achieving. But I know everybody wants to hear about our topic. So I'm going to throw it back to you, my friend. Okay, cool. All right. So let's get in. Let's start. Uh, First of all, with insulin, I'm gonna have Ed kind of go through the slide with Dr. Brad, so I'm gonna turn it over to you, Ed. All right, so obviously I don't know this topic as well as Brad, so I'm gonna kind of give a brief overview of what insulin exactly is. So insulin is a hormone uh, made and released by the pancreas. 
it allows your body to use sugar or glucose from carbs for energy or to use it later on. Um, it also helps regulate blood sugar and it is anabolic. So insulin is I'm pretty sure the most anabolic hormone in the body, but anab anabolic doesn't necessarily just mean muscle building. It just means muscle uh, building tissue too. So that could also mean fat as well. Um, and it also is a fuel selector switch. So in relation to exercise, your body will use carbs for fuel when insulin is higher. And conversely, it will use fat for fuel when insulin is lower. So Brad, would you like to touch on this at all or? Yeah, so there's kind of a few ways to think about it. You know, one is your body was, I don't want to say designed, but you know, over billions of years of evolving is your body's adapted to be able to use a lot of different things for fuel, right? If you could only use one thing, you'd die pretty quickly. Um, and so your body can use fat, your body can use carbohydrates, your body can use protein. Um, and you kind of need to know, you need some sort of signal that tells you when you have more of one than the other. Um, and also you need to have a signal that tells you when you've ate, eaten and your body can you know, use the food that's just been consumed or it hasn't and kind of needs to use some of the more stored fuels, right? So insulin kind of plays this conductor that's kind of sends signals of, hey, I've been fed, I've been fed this type of food, um, and now I can start to use some of these, these foods that you know I can't store as much of um, and can be used for different types of metabolism, right? So that's one of insulin's roles, is it's kind of a, you know, a fuel selector switch or a conductor. It kind of tells you what's coming in, um, and it also tells you if you've eaten or not, right? So that, that's kind of one of the ways um, that it works. You know, one of the other ways it works is it helps regulate blood glucose. Right? So you've got, you could only, your, your blood glucose stays within a pretty narrow band normally when you're healthy, right? If it goes too low, you die um, pretty quickly. And if it goes too high, you know, you start to have a lot of health problems. Um, and low glucose is actually a lot worse than a little bit high glucose, right? Um, <clears throat> so insulin really works several ways to regulate, you know, blood sugar levels. One is it'll act on your peripheral tissue, so your muscles, your organs, um, your fat tissue, and it'll actually tell those tissues, okay, you can start pulling in glucose from circulation. Um, the other thing it does is it tells your liver, which makes and produces glucose and pumps it into circulation, that, hey, you know, I've just been fed, I have carbohydrates coming in, you don't need to make as much and push it into your, your bloodstream, um, so you can stop, you know, producing glucose. And what one of the things we know about, you know, things like diabetes or insulin resistance is occurring is not only is it, you know, you can't uptake insulin to your peripheral tissue, but your liver is continuing to pump glucose out when it shouldn't be because it's not getting this break signal. Um, so that, that's kind of a lot of layers that people don't think about. So it's not just one, it doesn't just do one thing. Um, the other thing too is, insulin really is, is pretty key for preventing breakdown of tissue, right? So people often think of insulin as being anabolic, and its primary anabolic action is actually that it's anti-catabolic, so it prevents breakdown of tissue, right? So if you, if you look at people who have type 1 diabetes, who just have a very severe, they have no insulin, right? They're deficient of insulin. If they don't take exogenous insulin, their phenotype is very small, right? Just they're always continually breaking down tissue to provide glucose, um, and they don't have a lot of ability to create and build new tissue. Cool. So the other thing I know about insulin is that there's really, I don't I want to say no, but there's very few other hormones in the body that act in the same way that insulin does. Right, so. Yeah, insulin's really the only one that works. Um, you have, you have a hormone called glucagon that's kind of the opposite of insulin, um, where it causes you to produce more sugar, but it doesn't do a lot of the other pieces um, that insulin does. Right. And then my other question, so when we talk about blood sugar, that's the same thing as saying blood glucose, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. just want to make sure people understand that those terms are used interchangeably and mainly um, carbohydrates or uh, starchy carbohydrates in particular are what are converted to glucose in the body. And then that sort of is how insulin comes in and regulates your blood sugar. Am yeah. I saying that? 
Yes. Yep. <laughs> okay. I know it can get, I, you know, even when I was creating this um, slide, it gets, you know, if you don't have a background in this or medical history, sometimes the terms can get a little bit confusing. So I want to make sure we were clear about that. And in this case, um, I'm sure there's a lot of confusion around insulin resistance and then insulin sensitivity. So mm -hmm. let's distinguish between those terms and then talk a little bit about what insulin resistance is and then uh, what it isn't. Would you like to go into that? Yeah, so insulin resistance really is just your cells don't respond to the signal, right? Insulin is, it's a hormone and it binds to a receptor in your cells, so it kind of fits like this. And then it sends a signal to your cell to do things. Um, and insulin resistance is basically just when that, once your hormone binds to the receptor, that signal's not being sent, right? So imagine like you're trying to turn the light switch on um, and there's a short in the electrical circuit and you just have no signal. So that's what insulin resistance is. Um, it's fundamentally just insulin and the signal that it's sending to the cells is, is not working properly. Um, now what really happens though is it's not like this on or off thing, right? Is there's levels of it, right? You can have mild insulin resistance, moderate, severe, extreme, and it kind of will stepwise up, right? So it's kind of a, a graded response to those things. Um, a, a few other things just to note about insulin resistance, um, and we'll we'll talk about this maybe a little bit later, is insulin resistance does not arise from producing a lot of insulin, right? Is the resistance actually happens before insulin levels go up, right? So if you produce a lot of insulin, like let's say you're Ed, you're a normal healthy person, um, and you go eat a whole box of Krispy Kreme donuts, and you have a huge insulin response you're not going to become insulin resistant from just having a lot of insulin around, right? All that insulin will actually end up having an action somewhere. It'll get degraded and then you'll, you know, pee out what doesn't, the, the breakdown of the molecule. Insulin resistance actually happens. It's a gradual process that happens over time. And it actually happens inside the cell um, where the signaling occurs. That signaling process gets cut off from inside the cell from changes that happen inside there, not due to, you know, just higher levels of insulin. Mm -hmm. Um, and then insulin sensitivity is just the opposite side of the spectrum, right? It's, it's how responsive are your cells to a given level of insulin being around. So let's say your body produces, let's just say 100 units. Um, you know, are all 100 units sending a signal that your body's seeing or is it only seeing 50% of that or 25% of that? So that's kind of what insulin sensitivity is. Cool. Now, one thing that I've heard, I always like to think in analogies. So insulin resistance is like, think about it if you are, say, you're hard of hearing and someone's knocking on the door. Um, the more hard of hearing you are, the louder it's going to have to knock on the door for you to hear that. Yep. And so it's like, you know, someone with normal hearing, you can tap lightly on the door door's gonna open. Um, as you become more resistant, think of it as you're losing your hearing and then you just have to knock harder and harder for that door to open. And then eventually you're just not gonna hear the knocking at all, correct? Yes, yep. Cool, now what kinds of things make us become more insulin resistant? So there's, there's a lot of things. Um, you know, one is carrying an excess amount of body weight, right? So the primary reason people become insulin resistant is is obesity, uh, and that's primarily from just energy overload in your cells. So when you are, you know, obese and you have an energy overload inside the cell, a lot of things happen that kind of shut off that insulin resistant or that insulin signal, right? So it's it comes down to things like inflammation, like inside cells and outside of cells, oxidative stress, just having too much um, fatty acids in the cell will actually cause it to not be insulin sensitive. Um, so that's really the primary. Now, there are other ways that you can become insulin resistant that don't have anything to do with, um, you know, obesity, right? Those can be things like um, people who are in sepsis, right? They have a massive inflammatory response um, from an infection. They become highly insulin resistant. Um, you know, toxic exposures can do the same thing. So, a lot of it just comes down to what's happening inside the cell um, and how is that insulin signaling being kind of shut off. Cool. Um, and then obviously we were talking about insulin resistance 
is kind of that precursor to becoming diabetic, right? Yeah, it's it's the hallmark feature, right? So why would blood sugar raise? Is one, you're not disposing enough into your peripheral tissue or you're producing too much by your liver. Um, and insulin resistance is what causes blood sugar to creep up because now your body's not doing either of those appropriately. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that kind of leads us into this next slide, um, which I got this analogy from, from Dr. Mike T. Nelson about thinking of, so insulin um, and blood sugar. So it's kind of like a bathtub. Um, and think of it as carbohydrates are what's coming out of the faucet when you're eating into the bathtub. And then blood sugar is like the level of the water in mm -hmm. the bathtub. Um, and then obviously you have a drain. <laughs> so um, when you measure your blood sugar, all you're doing is measuring the level of water in the bathtub. Um, and it's not really giving you the whole picture because if, if you're dumping a lot of carbohydrates in and the drain, which is, you know, exercise and muscle isn't clogged, um, the, the water level can stay exactly the same versus, you know, how is that drain? Um, how effective mm -hmm. is that? Because if the drain is clogged, then the blood sugar is going to rise. Yeah. And so you can kind of think of, of insulin as both the, actually, you can think of it as both the faucet um, and the drain, right? Is because insulin will, when it's working properly, will break the drain, um, you know, like your liver output. Um, and also it will open up or it'll break the faucet and open up the drain, right? So that that's what it'll do. So when it's not functioning properly, the drain will or the faucet will be wide open and the drain will be closed. Um, and so that kind of is one of the really interesting pieces about when you think about, you know, how do you dietarily approach somebody who has insulin resistance is how much of the dietary carbohydrates really regulate the daily blood glucose levels versus is it this you know, liver glucose output and drain problem, right? And that's really what it comes down to is it's the amount of dietary carbohydrates, unless you're consuming, you know, 800 to 1,000 grams a day, are not really going to be the big issues with managing blood sugar and insulin resistance. It's going to be, you know, how do you, how do you fix what's going on at the faucet and at the drain? Mm -hmm. Cool. Is there anything else uh, you want to say about insulin and blood sugar? I don't think so. Okay. And then the point about, you know, blood glucose monitoring. So we'll get to, you know, some people who um, obviously, you know, you're measuring it at, at different times of the day. Um, how does that affect like the, the whole picture of what's going on inside your body if you're just doing the blood glucose monitoring? Yeah. You know, I think, I think blood glucose monitoring is really good for people who, who have diabetes. Um, I think, you know, because, helps them manage, especially if they're on, you know, blood glucose lowering drugs, insulin, um, you know, the new DPP-4 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists or SGL-2 inhibitors, any of those drugs, you know, that affect blood glucose levels um, and you need to take based on that is you should have a good idea of what's going on and how your body's responding. But for most of us, people who are, you know, otherwise healthy is monitoring your blood glucose levels, you know, isn't really going to tell you a whole lot other than you know what your levels are after you eat uh, when you wake up that kind of stuff now in some cases that can be really helpful but i think for most people it, it's kind of more distracting than it is helpful right yeah cool all right so let's talk about insulin and weight gain because i think probably people are are interested in this um so let me just highlight these bullet points real quick so as fat increases, which mainly I'm talking about your adipose tissue, so you're gaining weight, um, insulin resistance develops and can induce fat accumulation up to a point. And then after that, it, it may eventually protect individuals against further weight gain. Um, can you expand on that a little bit, Dr. Brad? Yeah, so one of the really interesting pieces, and people don't think about this, is the primary reason that people gain weight really has nothing to do with, with insulin levels, right? Is insulin levels rise after you start to gain weight. Um, insulin resistance itself is one of those things that kind of prevents more, just more stuff going into cells. Um, because, you know, we know that 
cells themselves can only hold so much. Um, and as you start to store more fats and more carbohydrates, things to kind of get broken, right? Um, imagine like what would happen if you, you know, filled your gas tank over the top of your car, right? That's not helpful. Um, it's just actually going to be really bad for your car. And so one of the things that happens is as insulin resistance develops, it actually will reduce the amount of you know, nutrients that are being deposited in the cells and will kind of increase your, your basically thermic effect, right? So one of the things that's really interesting is people who are obese do not have a lower BMR um, than people who are lean, right? They actually, a lot of times they have higher ones because, you know, they have more tissue and et cetera. But there is some thought that as you start to get to higher levels is this insulin resistance can kind of slow weight gain. Um, but that kind of happens at the extreme levels. Now, the other one is, you know, if insulin did make people gain weight, you would expect that people who, like, if you were to take you, me, Ed, and Amber and measure all of our insulin levels, that whoever of us has the highest level would, you know, gain the most weight over the next, you know, year, and the person with the lowest would lose the most weight. And that's not true. Like, there's literally no correlation between your fasting insulin level and, and future weight gain. It has nothing to do with it. Um and there's, there's been enough research done that there's been no evidence to suggest that insulin itself has anything to do with weight gain. Um, you know, anything like more than probably three to four percent of explanatory value. There, there could be some really roundabout way, but it itself is really not causing weight gain in, you know, common obesity. Yeah, that's exactly what the next um, statement says um, from Stephen Guyanet. Um, so basically, overall literature suggests that people with high insulin levels do not gain more weight or fat over time with, than people with low insulin levels. So basically saying that insulin is not the root cause of mm -hmm. weight gain. So, And I think that's where a lot of people... Um, come in and we'll get into this when we talk about the ways that you're measuring, you know, your fasted, um, fasted insulin and things like that tend to think that because they might be on the verge of becoming insulin resistant, that now they're just automatically set up to gain weight. And like, it's not because of the insulin, it's because of an energy imbalance, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, okay. So let's talk to, I'm going to send this to Amber for a minute let her talk about the ways that you might measure insulin resistance. Go for sure. it. Sure, we've got a couple different things listed. So a fasted insulin test is typically done overnight. So you go for uh, about eight hours of fasted and then you get your blood drawn and um, you're, um, gosh, I mean, that that's um, one where they're just testing to see what the insulin is in your blood. That Brad, I was just gonna run through all these and then turn it back to you, is that okay? Great. Yep. All right. Then we're going to go to the HbA1c. And what that's doing is it's not fasted. So, and it's testing just the averages of your blood sugar to determine risk rates. Then we've got triglycerides. Triglycerides is a test that when, you're tri when your cholesterol and triglycerides are high, you usually fall into a high risk category for other um diseases or issues so then if you you just it's one of those that if you typically have one you have the other kind of thing so if you've got um high cholesterol then you're probably going to have um high um a high blood sugar then we've got oral glucose where you drink a sugary drink and then get some blood drawn to see what your blood sugar is and um, if it is elevated. So with a couple different options from fasted to non-fasted to invasive to non-invasive to identifying some um, risks, risk factors of being you know, high blood sugar are some options for uh, measuring your insulin resistance. Brad? Yeah, so what I would tell people is, you know, Fasted insulin, um, fasting blood glucose, and A1C are probably going to be your best markers of insulin resistance. And I would like to tell people is get all three measurements, um, you know, because one can be high for some weird reason, you know, while the others are normal. 
make sure they're truly fasted. You know, make sure you haven't exercised a ton right before because your your blood glucose will probably be higher. Um, triglycerides can be high because of insulin resistance, but they can also be high for other reasons. So that's that's I wouldn't say you know if you get a high triglyceride level, you wouldn't just immediately jump to the hey I have insulin resistance. You know, try to get the other ones done. And then oral glucose tolerance challenges for for research purposes, they're super helpful. Um, I think for most normal people is it's not a really helpful test um, for most people, at least from my perspective. So I would say that the other there are other tests you can do, but these are these are very these are the most easily interpretable ones, especially the fasted insulin and the A1C and then like a fasted blood glucose. Those would be the three best ones I would suggest that people you know want to know where they sit in terms of how insulin resistant or insulin sensitive are you. Cool. All right. So let's talk about, well, let me come back here for a second. So, um, and it's probably leading into the next slide, but so you're, you're, you come back with these markers and your doctor says um, you're pre-diabetic. So what does that mean? And how does your diet need to change when you get that um, sort of feedback? Yeah, so what it means is you're starting to develop insulin resistance. Well, you have you have insulin resistance, but it's pretty mild, right? So you may have a slightly elevated blood glucose or slightly elevated A1C, um, or your insulin may be high. And so you're kind of on the pathway to to diabetes. Um, there's there's a lot of different ways to address it, right? Um, there's been a ton of trials done, and it really comes down to very simple things, right? physical activity, managing your diet appropriately, um, and for most people, weight loss, right? And there's not a single, you know, dietary approach that's been shown to be far and away better than any other diet, right? A lot of doctors will prescribe low-carbohydrate diets to people, one, because that's just kind of the, the zeitgeist right now, like that's just what they do. Um, in a few years that will change and it's kind of an easy intervention right you can just tell people hey just lower your carbohydrate intake um, and it doesn't require a lot of effort on the doctor's part um, doesn't send them to a nutritionist doesn't require follow-up just says hey you know go home don't eat any more of this stuff and you'll be um, so pretty much any any macronutrient breakdown can work right there's 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 data showing you know very high percentage of your diet carbohydrates can result in really good improvements in insulin sensitivity with concurrent weight loss and improvements in physical activity and extra sleep, right? There's studies that show, you know, um, low-carb diets can do the same thing, but none of them are superior. Um, there may be a very tiny benefit for some over the other, but none of them actually really make a difference clinically. So as long as you can kind of manage the, you know, lose weight over time, do it sustainably, become a lot more physically active because that's one of the best ways to improve it, sensitivity is exercise um, and, and get more sleep. So those are really the ways. There's there's no magic hacks. There's no magic because um, it really comes down to changing the, under, the fundamental underlying physiology of what's going on, right? Just consuming less carbohydrates is going to solve a lot of those issues we talked about of what actually causes insulin resistance. Right, exactly. And Amber, I was going to let you kind of go through this. I think Brad touched on most of it, but um, what would you like to add, Amber? Um, I, yeah, I think Brad pretty much nailed it. <laughs> How to improve your insulin sensitivity, like Brad said. Um, you want to exercise more. You want to reduce stress, lose weight, um, eat, you know, eat vitamins and minerals. Um and get more sleep. I mean, your your goal is to become more metabolically flexible, so you can use carbohydrates and fat. So. Yeah, and there are a few like small things that you can do to help. I mean, these are not things that are going to change the whole course of your your life, but you know, there are a few things that have been shown to kind of on top of diet and exercises be helpful, or things like you know, adding cinnamon um, and magnesium. Those, those are two things that have been shown that, you know, have small benefits on top of diet and exercise. Um, and, and they make sense from like a 
you know, a mechanistic standpoint, magnesium specifically and, and cinnamon too has some, some benefits. So, you know, if you're kind of starting down the route and you are starting to, you know, improve your diet and starting to be more physically active, you know, taking a supplemental magnesium and a supplemental cinnamon um, is, can also provide some additional benefit. Yeah, and I um, speaking of getting more sleep, um, I have seen some studies that show um, on less sleep, your pancreas actually has to pump out more insulin. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it just does. So your your pancreas is working like um, I forget the percentage, but just a lot harder to maintain the same levels um, as someone who is consistently getting that seven to eight hours of sleep. Yep. Yeah. So one more reason to get your sleep <laughs> and obviously sleep helps with fat loss, which is then going to lose weight and you're going to feel better when you exercise. So all of these things are things that we preach at Eat to Perform. And like Brad said, you know, all diets have, um, you know, some level of effectiveness um, for us or, or for you. When you're looking into this, you should consider that ultimately the diet that's the most sustainable over time. So if a doctor just tells you, go home, don't eat carbohydrates, um, maybe that's okay, but really how sustainable is that in the course of your life? And just know that it's not the carbohydrates that are causing the issue, it's more of the um, energy balance. So that, you know, at, uh, calories in, calories out. You know, we're going to say yeah, something. I think, I think one of the things to think about too is like, let's say you go to the doctor, you get a blood test back, A1C comes in, you know, above the normal range and you're kind of in pre-diabetes range the goal is not just to get the a1c down for your next visit right like you can do all sorts of crazy things to make that happen um you, know, you could just not eat for two months and you would achieve that but the goal is you know five years from now when you go in for that checkup what is it going to be right because that's really what matters is the thing about diabetes is not this you know the reason it causes so many health issues is it's a long graded exposure of, you know, a metabolic milieu that's just bad for your health over a long period of time. Right? So if you can say, okay, here's where I am now. And then 20 years, I want to be a lot healthier. You know, that's how you kind of put together that piece instead of like, Hey, I have to hit a number by my next blood test. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, so just to summarize, and then we'll let you guys ask all your questions. Hopefully we can get a, a good Q&A session going while we've got Dr. Brad on the phone here. Um, but just to summarize, so no data supports that a low-carb diet is better for you um, or better at reducing your fasted insulin and, and then as, as well as your, your other markers that indicate insulin resistance. Um, research also shows that increased fat consumption. Oh, we didn't talk about this. So a little bit about how maybe a diet really high in fat um, might not be the best choice. What do you, um, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of research that's kind of looked at different macronutrients um, in terms of improving insulin resistance. And if you kind of look at, you know, high fat versus high carb or low fat versus low carb, um, really high fat consumption in some studies, depending on if there's been weight loss or not, has been shown to kind of increase insulin resistance. Um, and I think those studies really come down to the people haven't really lost weight um, and their fat metabolism is already impaired. And now you're kind of just throwing, you know, another wrench in an engine that's kind of broken. Um, so that's something to really think about. So, you know, people who are going to adopt kind of a ketogenic, low carb, really high fat diet is, if you have insulin resistance, it really needs to be in the context of big caloric restriction that you're doing that. Right. And then at, at nine calories per gram versus four calories per gram, high fat consumption is also just going to lead to overall more calories consumed in general. Yep. And then last but not least, so a positive energy balance plays a greater role in management. So that is what we are doing here at Eat to Perform, um, obviously tracking what you're eating. Um, and then trying to keep that energy balance, um, whether you're in like performance recomp, where you're eating enough to fuel your exercise and your workouts, or you're in fat loss, where we're trying to eat in a deficit, um, knowing what you're eating and managing that um, is going to be much more beneficial than, than you know, trying to go on some, some crazy <laughs> quick weight loss plan. 
So before I go to Q&A, any last thoughts from, from you, Brad? Um, if people are interested, they should sign up for the course that we are currently in the middle of. That'll answer yeah. probably more questions than you didn't even know you had. It's true. I think that um, I, you're about three lectures into it so far, and um, it definitely goes much, much, much further in depth than what we were able to cover right now. Um, so where would they find the access to sign up for that, Brad? Um, it's, I think it's just eatperform.com slash institute for better dieting. Okay, cool. Um, any thoughts, Amber, before we turn it over? Mm -mm. Nope, Ed? Nope. Okay, cool. All right, so I think we have a couple questions already. So I'm going to go ahead and let um, Amber, why don't you get us started with the questions? Sure. Marilyn asks, so someone with sleep apnea could potentially see an improvement in their insulin resistance if treated, is what she's asking. Yeah. So I would say if, if your sleep apnea improves and your sleep improves dramatically, it would not surprise me if your, your blood markers for insulin resistance start to come down quite a bit. Let's see. Alyssa is asking about cinnamon. Since you threw that out there, it says, does flat out adding cinnamon as a spice to things help or not really just like a supplement or a pill form? Yeah, it absolutely will help if you add it to food. Um, you just have to make sure you're getting the right dose. Right. So, you know, if you're just sprinkling a little bit, that's probably not the same as if you're taking it in a supplemental or pill form. Um, so just make sure you're getting the right dose. And I can't remember the dosing off the top of my head. I'll have to look it up. Um, but get you that information but just make sure you know you're getting the right dose of what you should be because if you're not getting enough it's not going to do enough it's not going to do anything for you cool all right uh lynn let's see uh Alyssa says fantastic cinnamony rice pudding is in the future right. <laughs> there, we go. there we go um lynn says uh if exercise is the best way to address insulin resistance, what types of exercises and how often do you suggest? So there's been a lot of, a lot of research on this topic. Um, and after reading probably most of what's been published is it doesn't really matter exactly what type you're doing. Um, I'll say that with a caveat is it, there needs to be some form of resistance training involved. Um, and then there needs to be just a lot of physical activity and movement. So those are the two big priorities is, you know, get some form of resistance training in and then be, get a lot of movement and physical activity throughout the day. So then what do whether you like cross it or hit or cycling or rowing or anything like that is all of them can be pretty equally effective if you kind of do the same amounts and then you get an adequate amount of insulin or uh, insulin resistance, resistance training. Yeah, and I do think if you're someone that's going from no exercise, so maybe thinking about a family member or something like that, um, to now wanting to exercise, I think simply, you know, getting that walking in first um, can help, um, you know, maybe start out with a, a personal trainer a couple days a week to teach you some of those resistance exercises. Um, I don't think you have to go hardcore from, you know, zero to 60 overnight. Um, but like Brad is saying, the, excellent, the exercise is an important component, and you should add it in, um, but then take into account kind of, you know, where you're starting from. So, okay, Amber. Yeah, Stephanie's asking, how does PCOS and insulin resistance correlate? Yeah, so um, before I dive into it, it's really interesting. So metformin, which is the kind of, you know, frontline therapy for people with prediabetes and diabetes is prescribed uh, also for women who have PCOS. And women with PCOS have insulin resistance, um, but it's through a di very different mechanism than traditional, what we would consider, you know, type 2 diabetes-based insulin resistance. PCOS drives insulin resistance through hormonal pieces. Um, and so it's the mechanisms are a little bit different um, and how you go about treating it are a little bit different, right? Things like metformin, um, you know, or glucophage or things like that can be really helpful because 
they can kind of help override some of those changes in metabolism that occur with PCOS. Um, but one of the things we do know is stress is a big piece in women with PCOS, um, a much bigger than in, you know, obesity-related insulin resistance. Um, managing your hormones is, is also a lot more important. Um, and then, you know, training and becomes a lot more important. Um, and your diet, a lot of people will prescribe low-carb diets for PCOS, but the literature out there that to say that's more effective than anything else doesn't really exist and doesn't convince me. So we've actually had a lot of success, um, you know, when using more moderate carbohydrate, lower fat approaches with women with PCOS, just what the type of work we do and the type of training that we have our clients do. Yeah, I would agree with that. We do have a lot of uh, PCOS clients. And I think we hear time and time again that actually when you get, um, it's not really the carbohydrates, it's it's when the energy level is um, high enough um, from the fuel that you're taking in uh, to manage that stress, um, you do start to feel better. Would you agree with that? I think so. I think that's a big piece of it. Um, I think that's still one of those areas of research that is more living in real world experience and anecdote than, you know, hardcore science at this point. But that's what we've seen with a lot of our clients. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Amber. Heather asks, how do diabetes and sleep apnea go together slash affect each other? Um, it's going to be less related to the actual diabetes um, and more related to the typically overweight or, you know, that comes, that's kind of the cause of the diabetes. So people who are overweight tend to have more sleep apnea. Um, and then when you don't sleep well, you don't feel good, your metabolism is not as good, not training as much, you're not moving around as much. So it's kind of a little bit of the obesity piece is the the start and then the sleep apnea just kind of makes it all worse. Gotcha. Um, Tony and Lynn have kind of the same question. Uh, it says they're asking, is there a way to actually fix or cure insulin resistance? Uh, or is this something once you have it, you'll have it for the rest of your life? So that's a good question. Um, I think people, I think the research tells us a few things. One is if you're an early stage, like if you're kind of starting to, you know, have some insulin resistance is you can reverse that um, and you can be, you can really exist without a lot of risk moving forward, right? So if, you, if you're if you overweight for a few years and your blood, your fasting blood glucose is creeping up and you're starting to develop some insulin resistance, um, and you get on proper either medication or lifestyle intervention and you get it under control and you kind of fix the root cause of inactivity and overweight, um, you can pretty much be okay the rest of your, you know, your life um, as long as you continue to manage it. For people who end up with more later stage, right, so they get to actual diabetes diagnosis, you can, in a sense, put it into remission, right? Where you can improve the insulin resistance, you can manage normal blood sugars, um, and you can kind of live a normal-ish life. Um, but you're going to have an elevated risk for the rest of your life, right? There's been a lot of research that's shown that people who are type 2 diabetes, even if they get their glucose management under control um, and they kind of reverse the insulin resistance, those initial periods tend to they tend to put you at a higher risk for kind of, you know, relapsing or, you know, um, you know, basically coming out of remission, so to speak, from it um, than people who are ever just in the early stage. So it's never something you completely like cure and then never have to think about again. It's not like if you um, like contract some contagious disease and then get a vaccine and cure it. This is very much a a metabolic phenomena that occurs on a spectrum. Um, and once you've kind of gone that far on the spectrum, your body's never going to be the same as it was if it had never happened, if that makes sense. So along with that, Tony's asking, how long would it take? So that slide that we had with all the suggestions for improving, you know, you get more sleep and we're getting more exercise and we're doing all that. Yeah, there we go. 
and we're reducing stress, we're losing some weight, what's a time frame uh, to see improvement? I mean, immediately, right? As soon as you start doing something, your body's changing. Now, how long does it take to show up on an A1C test or a fasting glucose test um, can really depend on the person, right? Some people will see those numbers go down in you know, 30 days. Some people will see those go down in 90 days. Um, a lot of it depends on how consistent are you, how aggressive are you with what you're doing. Um, but I mean, if you go out, if you get up off the couch and go for a walk, you're already improving it. You're just not going to see that on a blood test. Um, but it's kind of that spectrum of immediate to longer term. Gotcha. That's all I'm seeing, Susie, for any, any other questions. Yeah, that's great. I think we're right at about 50 minutes or so. So Perfect. yeah, I think this is a good time frame. Um, let's, Amber, what are you going to give away, my friends? So we've got some noon tabs that we are going to give away. It's a variety pack of flavors. Um, I know, Brad, you've talked about them before and used them, right? Yeah, they're, especially in the summer, they're a great way to kind of just make sure when you're drinking your water, you're getting the right amount of electrolytes. So you can just Throw the tabs in there and you don't have to worry about it. Um, it's really good if you're working outside or if you're just sweating a lot and want to make sure your hydration status is pretty good. Gotcha. Do you have a favorite flavor? Not really. I'm pretty, I'm very unpicky. I'll just take whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So we've got a variety pack that we're going to give away. So you can try them, maybe find your favorite flavor. Um, and um, check them out. So, drum roll, please. Anybody? I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. They are going to go to Liz Larson. Liz has been working on managing stress, taking a time out for herself when she needs it, whether that's a quick rock walk around the block or even hiding in another room. So, <laughs> girl, I've, I've done that. I've hidden my car in the garage. <laughs> so totally get it. Taking a break, time for you to bring it back down to neutral to um, be able to tackle every day and life. So good job for stepping away and uh, making yourself better so that you are better for everybody around you. <laughs> I love it. I'm sure that I've hidden many times in my uh, my career as mom, so it happens. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Well, cool. Thanks everybody for joining. I hope that you have some some fun plans on the agenda for the weekend. Um, Amber, stay safe out there on the water. Wear a life jacket. Uh, wear a life jacket. <laughs> and I don't know. Buy tickets to a game. Uh, <laughs> Bye right, guys. We'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.